Hi, uh, I'm Dr. Randy Bach. Today is March 23rd, and I'm honored to have with us uh, Thomas Fazi. Thomas, uh, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, what's been your journey? Um, what's new? Hi, Randall. Thanks a lot for having me on um, on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, I guess I uh, describe myself as a journalist um, and a writer, uh, as in someone who writes books and not just articles. Um, I've been doing this for uh, more than more than 10 years now. Um, uh, I started out in, I had a stint in documentary filmmaking uh, when I was younger, and then I got into uh, uh, written journalism, and I've been doing that for uh, you know, quite some time now. And uh, you know, before the pandemic, my areas of focus slash expertise were economics and uh, uh, European integration, mainly. Uh, so that's what I mainly wrote about from a kind of uh, a heterodox uh you know, critical perspective on both issues. Um, and, uh, you know, since the pandemic, I've, uh, I've, of course, you know, like a lot of people, uh, been devoting uh, a lot of time to writing about, uh, you know, public, uh, public health or better the public health disaster that the uh, pandemic has been. And um, I, uh, I came across a, a wonderful book in early 20. 22, which was uh, called a COVID consensus, uh, which was, had been written by this uh, British uh, historian called uh, Toby Green. And it was the first book that really took a critical look at lockdowns. Uh, and it was uh, an eye opener for me. I mean, I had, you know, uh, uh, I had already uh, developed my own ideas about lockdown. And in fact, I already participated in anti, anti lockdown uh, demonstrations here in Italy. Oh, by the way, I live in Rome, uh, in Italy. Um, but this was the first, you know, kind of solid, you know, theoretical work that I, that I had come across that, uh, that, uh, that approached uh, lockdowns from a critical perspective and especially looked at the impact of lockdowns in the global south and the developing world, which is a perspective that I had not come across at all, not even in kind of critical uh, circles, skeptic circles. And uh, so I got in touch with Toby and we, we, we developed a, uh, uh, well, initially a, a friendship, uh, an intellectual uh, friendship and also, you know, a almost a, 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 a relationship of uh, mutual moral support as, you know, two people that come from the left uh, uh, and were, you know, deeply estranged with the, you know, with the left's uh, reaction to COVID. Um, and so we started, you know, just discussing these ideas and, you know, talking about why the left had taken, you know, such absurd stances, uh, you know, on issues such as lockdowns and then vaccine mandates and so on. And uh, we started writing together about the pandemic on Unheard, which is a uh, British uh, online magazine. Uh, and um, you know, from a you know from an explicitly left wing perspective, I think that's what maybe kind of made our analyses maybe slightly different from the kind of critical analyses that were already out there, which were mainly coming from the right. Uh, now, you know, there's probably a lot to say about whether these terms even mean anything anymore. We might, you know, get into that uh, in a moment. But uh, um, just to, to make sense, you know, for, for, you know, for simplification, we, uh, you know, we, we were explicit about the fact that our analysis came from the left. Uh, and in fact, the first article we wrote together was called uh, The Left's COVID Failure. And uh, where we, we, we criticized, you know, the left's response to COVID. And, and, and the response was really interesting because uh, I think that that's a single article for, for, for which I, 
I re I've received the biggest feedback ever. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say that I received hundreds of emails from people uh, from self-described leftists just thanking us for writing the piece because, uh, you know, the, 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 the tone of most emails was, you know, I thought I was crazy for thinking these things as someone on the left. And, you know, thank you so much for giving voice to what I've been thinking, you know, for, for, for many months now. Uh, so, you know, I'm not crazy after all. There are other people out there that come from the left, but nonetheless uh, are very critical of, the, of these policies uh, because, of course, there was very little of that uh, on social media, uh, let alone on mainstream liberal slash progressive publications, uh, which were all staunchly, uh, you know, uh, with hardly any exception, pro, uh, you know, pro-COVID consensus, uh, basically. And so after that, we started writing other pieces, looking at you know various aspects of the pandemic response. Uh, and um, when the time came for Toby to write the the second edition of his book, the updated edition, um, he he asked me if I wanted to write it with him. Uh, he said, you know, it just seemed natural for us to write to write it together uh, because we're already writing about you know about the pandemic on a regular basis. So we might as well just, you know write the updated version to his to his to his of his book together and that's what we did and that's that's how the second edition of the covid consensus uh came about which came out only yeah, basically just over a month ago uh which is in fact a completely new book because that first the first edition came out you know it was written right in the middle of the, you know the, the the second lockdown so you know late 20 2020 and uh so you know it was, it was so much of what uh so you know much of a lot of things still hadn't happened yet, especially, you know, in relation to the vaccines and, and so on. And so and, and so in this second edition, we really try to offer what what you know, what what we think is uh, maybe, uh, you know, a bit arrogantly the most comprehensive look at the you know, an out critical analysis of the pandemic that's been written uh, yet. And in fact, that's that's what motivated us to write the book in the first place. So, uh, you know, of course, we we're aware that a number of books had already been written about the pandemic, but our, our feeling was that most books focused on individual aspects. They were criticizing individual aspects of the pandemic, rather of the pandemic, or better, of the pandemic response. You know, whether it be lockdowns or the vaccines or the, you know, the World Health Organization. But we felt that you know there was there wasn't an analysis out there that tied all these strands together uh, into a coherent kind of, you know, holistic analysis of the pandemic, which we felt very necessary because we felt that these were all different aspects of the same story. Uh, you know, it was, you know, as we try to show in the book, you know, you can't understand lockdowns without understanding, you know, the vaccine push and you can't understand the vaccine push without understanding, you know, lockdowns. I mean, all, all these various elements of the pandemic response of the COVID consensus are, are tied together. And so, um, so this is what we, we we try to do in the book, and uh, I think we, we came close to what our objective was, and uh, you know I'm very very happy and very very proud of it. And and of course you know compared to the first edition, there's also much more uh, in depth political reflection on what the pandemic has meant. I mean, the first edition was written right in the midst of it. The second edition was written kind of as the pan, you know, as the the emergency was receding, and so we were also able to take sort of a more you know. Uh, wide-eyed uh, look at what had happened uh, and of course you know in a lot of a lot of things are still are still ongoing but uh yeah enough had happened you know for us to be able to take stock of what of of of, of, you know, of kind of what had gone on uh you know the madness of the previous three years and uh, 
And so we, we offer also kind of, you know, our, our interpretation of what that has meant uh, politically so, and economically and so on. That's excellent. Thank you. So let me ask you, when you say COVID consensus, I mean, consensus means um, people thinking, uh, you know, coming to a conclusion, I suppose, of sorts. Um, mm -hmm. Have we? And, and what is that consensus? Um, or is it more of a critical concept of what had been the various consensi uh, uh, through mm -hmm. time? Right. Now, well, when we speak of the COVID consensus, we mean a kind of enforced consensus that was rammed down people's throats and that was presented right. uh, across, the, you know, uh, by government and public health officials and through the mainstream media. Uh, so, you know, it's what we refer to as this kind of single narrative uh, relating to, you know, to what was going on, which was the only thing you could hear wherever you turn, you know, Pretty much wherever you turned. Uh, so this is what we mean with you know the the, the COVID consensus. It was this uh, elite level consensus that was then kind of you know very aggressively uh, imposed on, uh, on 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 everyone else. And we think it's um, it's important to focus on this uh, on this consensus because it's a it's a fundamental element, I think, and it's very helpful in understanding really what 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 happened because what we I mean, you know, we take a kind of a global look at the, especially the, the kind of really early weeks of, of the pandemic. And it's quite extraordinary to see how this, uh, this consensus, it, 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 it solidifies, it crystallizes very, very early on in terms of, you know, what's going on and what the necessary response must be, uh, i.e. we're facing an, you know, a, an incredibly deadly virus that represents a threat that's bearing down on humanity as a whole. It's an invisible enemy that could, you know, could threatens anyone, anywhere. Uh, and the only, you know, possible way to avoid an incalculably high number of deaths is to adopt this completely novel response, which is lockdowns, uh, which we will need to uh, uh, adopt until a vaccine is ready, uh, at which point we will need to vaccinate as many people as possible, ideally the entire world, uh, at which point we will, we might be able to return to normal. This is kind of, this is in, you know, this is the condensed version of the COVID consensus. And it emerges very, very early on uh, across the planet, really. And I think that's, you know, that's another really interesting aspect of what happened. I mean, it's the first time that billions of people uh, across uh, hundreds of nations are exposed to an almost identical narrative uh, concerning what, in effect, is also the first ever global state of emergency. Never before had a, had a state of emergency been declared at a global level. Yes, we've had pandemics, you know, been declared before, but uh, hardly anyone remembers even the the, the, the you know the, the, the last pandemic before uh, before COVID, which was was a was the 2009 swine flu pandemic, which hardly anyone even remembers about. So this is the first time that we see this kind of global, uh, the imposition of this global state of emergency and, you know, the, 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 the parallel rise of this single narrative uh, at a global, you know, harmonized at a global level, uh, which, which we call the COVID, um, the COVID yeah. consensus. And of course, you know, it's, it's consensus that has nothing to do with uh, you know scientific evidence, with the science, with what the science was saying, with what the evidence was saying, with it, it is also a consensus that's completely 
uh, at odds, radically at odds with what the, you know, the actual scientific consensus as to how you manage pandemics and especially uh, uh, respiratory influenza pandemics, uh, you know, pre-2020. Uh, you know, it's a radical reversal of what, you know, the actual scientific consensus had been on pretty much any issue, any issue you, 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 you take, whether it's universal masking or natural immunity or, you know, uh, you know po population wise, uh, 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 wide um, quarantines. I mean, the consensus was all against these measures uh, right, right up to 2020. And suddenly we see a radical inversion of the consensus. Uh, but it was you know, a politically constructed consensus, which had... Oh, I agree with you there. So I'm, I, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, there's a bad joke. I, I'm, I'm the son of a lawyer. My brother's a lawyer. I love lawyers. But there's, there's a joke. Uh, how, how do you keep a lawyer from drowning? And the answer is you take your foot off his neck. <laughs> because, I mean, the jokes, I, I think it's funny. Um, and it's funny because we have, a, you know, kind of a contempt for lawyers. Yeah. But it seems to me that the COVID consensus, in a sense, the acting out of that joke, how, how do you keep the populace from, uh, how, how can you make the populace healthy again? Well, you take your foot off their neck. Uh, it seems like the, the COVID consensus, as you phrase it, uh, was that, was putting uh, their foot on our necks uh, for, for some greater good. And the question is, what is that greater good? I, I'm going to you know, bundle in a couple things to this question. I apologize. Let's see. Oh, but, I, would quote, um, I would put that in, in, in quotes. Fair enough. And, you know, two, there's 2004 Dr. Fauci, um, who uh, was on C-SPAN uh, announcing, and I, I do my Fauci voice, so I apologize, but um, it, there's basically nothing like you know, having the natural case. You know, he's talking about influenza. <laughs> uh, if you've had the flu, there's no reason to get a flu shot later. That This is just, you know, superfluous or whatever. And, and your natural immunity is always going to be more complete. Than, than a vaccine immunity, which is only one, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> That's uncanny. So he, <laughs> he, he was quoted on that. And, and if you post that video today, uh, literally, literally today or yesterday, literally yesterday on Facebook, you get blacked out. Uh, I had a friend who did it and it's been going around, uh, making the rounds and that gets blotted out and it gets a disclaimer. You can't even see the video. You only can see the fact, fact yeah. checker uh, version right. of it. So, so this was, this was always the, the consensus. Um, I'm going to just put a little kind of uh, thought bubble here. There was, uh, I think, a, a 2019 uh, kind of war games, um, uh, Gates Foundation or something like that, um, uh, about, you know, locking down the populace. And then the, the last part of my embedded question is I, I searched Google Scholar for lockdowns, but I put a time filter on like 2017 or something like that. So you see, you see when lockdowns had been applied to public health, there are two instances, apparently, in the modern era, uh, at least in the 21st century, one was Sierra Leone for yeah. Ebola, and the mm -hmm. other was uh, in, in South Africa, uh, which was already a, a kind of a prison hospital, <clears throat> or like a not quite a leper ward, but mm -hmm. a severe TB, resistant TB ward. So they they locked that down. It was not really, you know, so the lockdown has always been a prison term, and all the other usage yeah. of that term in the public health um, canon is for prisons. Uh, how do we get from prisons? So so getting back to my joke. You know, how do you keep a lawyer from drowning? You take your foot off his neck. Well, you know, we, we see that with George Floyd as an analogy. And so, we're, but that's, that's a prisoner concept. That's a, that's a one that has huge disdain. And people went nuts when, when, when you know, here, when, when the, the, you know, the guy's foot was on George Floyd's neck. Uh, yeah. Were we George, George Floyd? And shouldn't we be, you know, there's the, another joke. Uh, you know, the, the guy goes to the kings, like the people are revolting. It's like, I know they should shower. Um, but, but. But, 
And so I, that, I don't know if you see, sense a question in there, but yeah. I, I guess no, the question is what, what brings on this concept where um, there, there's such kind of animosity to the subject and to what greater good or end was it? And, and as a conspiracy kind of theory, was it for a vaccine or was it for some political mm-hmm. end or was it from, you know, some, uh, you know, reordering, reshuffling of the, of the social order? Mm-hmm. How big a thing was it? Was it genuinely mm-hmm. public health? Was it health at all? Right. A lot of questions in there. So uh, kind of t- you know, unpacking them one at a time. Uh, on the issue of lockdowns, I mean, lockdowns, the, the, the lockdown as they, as, you know, as, as, you know, as, as what the term has come to mean during the COVID pandemic, uh, that concept, uh, it didn't exist. So, I mean, not only had lockdowns really, uh, as in nationwide lockdowns, not only had they never been uh, really implemented uh, before, uh, they'd never even been conceived of uh, before. So if you look at all the pre-2020 pandemic plans drawn out by governments and even by the WHO itself, uh, the word lockdown doesn't uh, doesn't appear once. But not only does the word not appear, I mean, the concept doesn't appear in, you know, other, you know, in, 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 in other words either. I mean, the concept is just not there. And in fact, uh, uh, the WHO's... Um, uh, report on on the management of uh, um, uh, of epidemics and pandemics, which came out uh, interestingly in late 2019, just a few months before the outbreak, the official outbreak in in Wuhan, uh, you know, explicitly states uh, or counsels against the quarantine, even of exposed individuals. So even of individuals that had come into contact with um uh with with uh with a positive person even the ex- you know even the, the quarantine of these exposed individuals is uh, is said uh uh is, is not recommended uh because the report says and i quote there is no obvious rationale for it and the report also notes rightfully so that there are also ethical implications in you know locking people up uh people that haven't actually you know broken a law uh, you know this is all discussed you know uh, this was all you know uh, fairly well understood pre 2020 uh so we've gone from a consensus where the who itself uh, recommended against the quarantine in even just of ex- even of exposed individuals to uh, the uh, you know the quarantining of the entire population, including of course you know an overwhelming majority of healthy people. This is something that had never been attempted before. You mentioned Sierra Leone. Uh, Sierra Leone uh, is um, uh, one of the few places where a 72-hour lockdown was attempted in 2014 uh, against Ebola. And uh, interestingly, uh, the consensus was that the, the you know the experiment had been a complete disaster. And in fact, uh, um, Medicine Sans Frontières, Medicines Without Borders, uh, that was you know that mm-hmm. kind of oversaw the implementation of that that measure and was there when it happened. Uh, issued a very scathing critique of that of, of that you know seventy two hour lockdown, saying that yeah. you know it, it didn't work. Uh, and in fact, it might have actually made things worse because, of course, you know, you're, you're locking people up in the same household and, uh, you know, obvious reasons why lockdowns might actually make things worse. And, you know, we can go into that if we, if we want. But uh, so, you know, the, the consensus was that what didn't did not exist um, uh, as to as to lockdowns. Also, you mentioned uh, I, I, I didn't know this um, this interview by Fauci that you mentioned, but in the book, we do speak about uh, talking of Ebola. Um, in 2014, when some uh, American nurses were coming back from Africa, re-entering America, uh, there was uh, kind of a small debate uh, in America 
as to whether these uh, the, these nurses that had come into contact with people suffering from Ebola, and Ebola is one of the most you know one of the deadliest diseases in the world, with a you know a shockingly high infection fatality rate. Nothing to do with COVID. You know that's a, that's a truly truly uh, terrifying uh, uh, virus. Um, and there was a debate as to whether these people should be put in quarantine when they arrived into, uh, I think it was Newark Airport. And, um, um, uh, uh, and in fact, Fauci came out against the quarantine measure, actually calling it a bit uh, draconian. So in 2014, Fauci considered the quarantine, uh, you know, a, a week-long quarantine or whatever for a few people coming back from Africa who had come into contact with the most, you know, the deadliest disease, uh, one of the deadliest diseases in the world. You know, uh, uh, too draconian, uh, and this is the same person that a few years on would then go to, uh, you know, lock us all up inside our houses, uh, and accuse anyone who didn't agree of being a a, a right wing, not a fascist, and and so on. So, I mean, it's and again, so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what happened in in that in that interval. You know, I mean, it's not like any new science, you know, any new pro lockdown science emerged. I mean, it's not like you know new evidence emerged and so, oh yeah, we changed our opinion uh, you know, over lockdowns. Of course, you know, nothing, nothing of the sort happened. Uh, and this is one of the most inc you know incredible aspects of what happened in those early weeks. Uh, you know, we we went from uh, Western commentators, uh, yeah, even public health officials looking at what was happening in Wuhan with a mixture of shock and even a bit of horror. I mean, if you go back to those early articles, even in the, you know, in the, in the progressive press, in The Guardian and so on, uh, they described what was happening in Wuhan in, you know, with, with you know, varying degrees of, you know, if, skepticism, if not outright concern. Uh, you know, articles published about, you know, how they were, you know, welding people inside their homes and how drones were following people around. And it was all described as pretty Orwellian. And there was this understanding that, you know, right or wrong, those measures never would have been able to uh, be applied in the so-called liberal democratic West. Uh, and over the course of really literally just a few weeks, we see a complete overturning. And we see the, you know, the, the, the consolidation of this pro-lockdown pro consensus. So this measure that had never been tried, never been conceived of, the few, you know, those few occasions where it had been tested, it was, had, it had considered to be, to, to have been a complete disaster, suddenly becomes, in the words of the WHO's first um, uh, mission-finding report to China, which comes out in late February, uh, becomes the only possible response to uh, to what was then just an epidemic because the pandemic hadn't been declared yet, um, and this is shocking on the basis of no evidence whatsoever except the fact that it seemed like cases were going down in China. But you know, uh, and that of course raises a whole you know a number of issues like how much can you trust you know the data that's been uh, uh, you know uh, provided by the Chinese authorities, and, and apart from that, you know, uh, but, but, but we already see the emergence of this idea that it's all about flattening the curve. You know, anything goes, anything is justified in the name of uh, uh, keeping down and reducing uh, COVID hospitalizations and COVID deaths, you know, as if that's the only, you know, the only cause of death and the only cause of hospitalization to be concerned of. And in the name of reducing or flattening that curve or, you know, reducing uh, or, so, you know, slowing down that, that, that curve, anything is justified. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and, and anything, you know, and, and whatever we do, that'll be a humane response because we're only doing it to save lives. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> a completely extraordinary, uh, you know, U-turn in terms of 
public health uh, response. And what what drove it? I mean, of course, that's a million dollar question, you know. And uh, we try to to uh, I think you know we provide and I think first of all, just by kind of describing the events in detail. I mean, I think that's the first, what we do in the first part of the book is just really offer a chronological you know description of what happened. And I think just when you 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 see what happened. And you put, you know, you connect and you start connecting the dots. I mean, there's very little of our own opinion in that first. In the second part of the book, you know, it's very much our own analysis of what happened. But in the first part of the book, it's very much a quite a dry kind of just like this is literally what happened. Also going back to before the pandemic. And so we, of course, mentioned that, you know, there had been a pandemic preparedness industry that had been burgeoning in the years preceding the uh, the, the pandemic. Uh, we don't go too much into that. I would like to have gone more into that in a book. It's something that I've developed in articles that have come out after the book's publication. But in fact, I mean, uh, even going even going back to the early uh, 2000s, we see the emergence of uh, kind of, you know, pub, you know, health security and biosecurity as a new uh, as a new paradigm. Uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, the, the with the collapse of, you know, I mean, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, you know, it's, it's all been about identifying new threats. And at some point, you know, this consensus forms as to the fact that, you know, the new, the future threats will be bio threats. And that could mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, man-made threats, so terrorist threats and, you know, bioterrorism, or it could be natural threats. And or, so or could in- theoretically, theoretically be political threats. Um, you know, so I just um, had a couple thoughts as you were going. First yeah. of all, um, you mentioned quarantine quite a bit, and you're in Italy, and uh, quarantine is an Italian word for, for 40, number 40, quarante. And uh, the concept was, I think, from the Black Death, uh, the plague, uh, to keep people um, inside for 40 days until they could prove themselves healthy. But that was for people who actually had active cases, not for people who had, in, you know, healthy and so forth. And so this is inimical to the concept of quarantine in a sense, lockdown. But um, yeah. Keeping healthy people at bay from each other. Um, yeah. we, we talked a little bit about Ebola and kind of the, the organism of Ebola it meets essentially the organism of the populace. And so, doc, you know, early Dr. Fauci, there's, you know, there's, there's early Fauci, there's current Fauci. I call current Fauci kind of the Fauci bot. And, and I'm, I, I use that as a pun because it's, the BOT is a bot and he has all these mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of pre-programmed answers for things. But he's also maybe Fauci bought, B-O-U-G-H-T, purchased. And, and I'm not sure exactly what it was. I think there's two, two different levels of Fauci bought, uh, purchased. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I think at the time, in the U.S. at the very least, there was a common enemy between China and the U.S. So this is my conspiracy theory. And mm-hmm. mind you, the word conspiracy means to breathe together. So it's a little bit ironic use uh, in terms of a pandemic. So that, that's, <laughs> you know, the conspiracy. And so we we're all mm-hmm. theoretically breathing together, but the conspiracy was to keep people away from breathing together. Um, <clears throat> so my... my kind of, this is, you know, I haven't written this up and I'm, I'm not sure it's right or wrong, but um, I feel as if the, the, the actual antiviral response, the tr- true antibody response was to excise uh, the, the foreign body, which was Mr. Trump in the White House. And, and it was very, it was, you know, quasi coordinated. I don't think, it, you know, conspiracy, it, it's, it's, I'm not sure everything stepped along the way. I'm not sure the virus knew when, or if it leaked out. Or, I don't think people, but as mm-hmm. things kind of moved along, I think it became a very convenient vehicle of, of kind of change analogies like a Trojan uh, yeah. force um, to 
um, you know, destroy the good economy, kind of his ratings in the polls, and to give him a huge challenge and to throw things in his way. And lockdowns uh, were uh, uh, basically, it, it almost immediately turned into a means to change the absentee ballot uh, process we had already had in the U.S. Uh, to this kind of mass, you know, dissemination of ballots, which could be ripe for harvesting, and as it turns out, were. Um, I, I don't necessarily think there was election fraud on the day of the election per se, but I think there was clearly a, a change in the way uh, voting occurred and the way they could be literally, you know, figuratively harvested. Anyway, so the, the question I have, I guess, is um, was there some kind of political, I mean, do you, do you wind up uncovering some kind of political um, under, underpinnings of this? Um, do you ascribe, and I, and I know that this, this happened throughout the West, but at least I think I'm not sure where lockdowns happened first. Maybe you could elucidate that. I think there might have been in Bergamo, whatever, but I don't think they were nationwide as, as where it was applied in the U.S. at the time when really it was only happening in, you know, Queens, maybe Washington State, a couple of places, but not in Omaha, not in Chicago, yeah. not, not, in, not in Texas and so forth. And we had a, a universal um, nationwide lockdown. Um, anyway, so maybe yeah. I, I, do, you, do you find a question there? You want to unpack that? No, I mean, the question is clear. I mean, uh, you know, again, we return to the question of, uh, you know, what was the motive? And uh, um, I think it's pretty clear that there were, um, I, I would, you know, we make a clear distinction in the book between a, uh, you know, conspiracy and co you mentioned coordination. Uh, I think they're two very different things. I mean, conspiracy implies secrecy, but a lot of, you know, a lot of what happened has been, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the decisions were openly, you know, a lot, a lot of the actors that played a crucial role in the pandemic response uh, had been very open uh, about, you know, their preference for uh, this kind of response. Uh, and so, again, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, this, the, you know, the threat of this, you know, this, this, the rise of the new bio threat and how this starts to, you know, leads to, you know, to the creation of this kind of pandemic preparedness industry, you know, beginning in the early 2000s. And, uh, and 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 it also you know and and this includes theorizing that health crises could be a very convenient way to uh, uh, you know limit civil you know limit civil liberties impose you know uh, um, draconian uh, control uh, over the population uh, sweep aside you know constitutional guarantees and so on and so forth I mean this is openly discussed in a number of these so-called simulations I mean there's a um, a Rockefeller um, 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 institute um, uh, yeah, document that's uh, uh, you know simulation that came out in 2010 and it looks at various scenarios uh, you know and, and one of these scenarios involves a pandemic which leads to China adopting you know a draconian response which is then copied throughout the West uh, leading to a structural transformation of Western societies into more controlled more uh, authoritarian societies I mean it's openly uh, I mean it's it's an uncanny description of what actually happened ten years later, and of course that could be, that could just be a coincidence. But I think it points to the fact that you know, re, you know, regardless of what we consider to be the virus's origin, you know, and whether it was you know uh, uh, deliberately put out there or not, I mean, there's no evidence of, of that. I mean, I think there's a strong evidence for the fact that the virus is likely to have come from the Wuhan lab, but there's no evidence that that was deliberately put out there. Uh, I think what's clear is that there was a uh, kind of a biosecurity complex, which already 
which uh, was, you know, was already ready to respond to an event like this in the way that they responded. Uh, you know, so a very, you know, and this is a confluence of interests. You know, it, it, it comprises some of the biggest biotech and pharma companies in the world. It comprises, you know, the world's most powerful public health institutions at the national and international level. Of course, the WHO first and foremost. It includes the, you know, the, the intelligence and the security apparatuses within the states, the so-called, you know, deep state. Uh, and so on and so forth, you know, and they had kind of coalesced uh, uh, at a global at a global level in the years preceding the pandemic, and so um, um, and and so you know the response that we saw was a response that was driven. It wasn't driven by uh, uh, you know, it wasn't driven by national politics. It wasn't driven by elected governments. It was driven by very opaque centers of power, uh, which stood to benefit from the response that we saw. Uh, and so, you know, what are the two most powerful fractions of capital uh, in the world today? It's the, the IT industry, uh, so, you know, big tech and uh, pharmaceutical industry. I mean, even before the pandemic, the, these, was, the, these were the most highly capitalized uh, uh, companies in the world, most, you know, i.e. the most powerful companies in the world. And, you know, it just so happens that these are the two sectors that most benefited from the pandemic response, essentially the IT sector from the lockdowns, which amounted to a massive transfer of wealth from, you know, the, the real economy to these, uh, uh, you know, uh, internet oligopolies, um, you know, destruction of the real economy, destruction of small and medium businesses, uh, at the advantage of these, uh, you know, mega corporations, uh, uh, you know, as a result of the fact that we all, you know, life just turned online all of a sudden. And then you have in the second phase of the pandemic, of course, the vaccine rollout, uh, which obviously, you know, uh, caused uh, some of the what, what were already the, some of the richest corporations on the planet to uh, make the biggest profits that have ever been seen in such a, a short period of time. I mean, uh, uh, I, I don't think, uh, you know, a company had, rec- you know, had registered a hundred, you know, I mean, a hundred billion dollars in profit uh, just for Pfizer, I think, just in 20, uh, 2022. Uh, we're talking astonishing amounts of, of money. Uh, and of course, this is it's not just money for itself. It's money as a vehicle for power, as a vehicle for control. Um, and so in terms of why, and I think uh, there was, I think that the, the profit element uh, is is fundamental. I think uh, part of the problem is the fact that our institutions have been completely captured by uh, by private interests, by vested interests, and these are the ones that largely drove the pandemic response. Uh, I mean, their control over the public health industry, uh, you know, apparatus is 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 total. I mean, uh, you know, if you consider the Gates, essentially uh, has more influence and power over the WHO. Than virtually any state on on the planet, just in, just by virtue of the money uh, he puts into the WHO, he's the second biggest funder, uh, um, uh, and, and and largely decides how much of the money, uh, the, the, how much of the funds is spent. Um, I mean, this show, and, and we also know that Gates was, of course, well, very well connected to the pharma, very well invested in the pharmaceutical industry, and so uh, you know, you don't need to be particularly conspiratorial to see. I mean, you need just a, a you know. A, a, a very you know standard uh, you know materially based uh, analysis to understand that uh, you know in the pandemic as throughout any other you know as in any other crisis uh, those in power will try to benefit from from the crisis and in fact this used to be a you know a, a pretty 
well understood concept on the left. You know, I'm thinking of authors like Naomi Klein that, you know, she wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine, which is all about how, you know, uh, capitalism exploits crises to its own advantage. You know, she looks at Katrina and, you know, and natural emergencies and so on, where each crisis is exploited by, you know, big, big corporations. And, and so, sometimes, um, they're, sometimes they're actually annealed. They're, they're, they're kind of glued, welded together. Um, getting back to Dr. Fauci, for my book, uh, we'll maybe get to later, Overturning Zika, I did a fair amount of research on, on that. And uh, Dr. Fauci comes up, as well, as well as WHO, a lot of the same actors and so forth. And um, there's part of the narrative, which it, it kind of glues on to a few other aspects. Um, I'll just give one, which was the, kind of this climate narrative, <clears throat> which in, in a sense is also, according to Naomi um, theory, that, uh, you know, kind of... <laughs> Basically, I guess it's a Linsky concept, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Zika one is saying, oh, well, this is part of global you know, warming, climate change, because these, these tropical things are going to take over the world. So it didn't really mm -hmm. happen and, and hasn't happened since then, but it's part of the still narrative that goes on. So we have to do things yeah. kind of on a, a you know, literally global sense, and we have to do all, you know, but all these things wind up being a, a centralization of power. You know, we're going to yeah. tell you, you know, how, how much to drive. There's a 15-minute city. Um, you know, we're going to tell you how much to drive, whether you can drive, whether you should drive. You know, we're going we're going to do all that stuff. And 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 who are we? Well, we're the we're the guys that don't really get affected by our proclamations. And so, you know, I you've written on a large variety of topics, and I, we're not going to be able to cover even probably a tenth of them um, today. But but um, a lot of them, I think, have to do with a sense that the kind of the genuine. Say, I'm not a socialist, but you know, the genuine purest motivations of socialism, which is caring for those less fortunate. And I think that has been lost in the debate. So the question I have for you is, is how did, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Draconian a fair number of times, and, and mm. Dra Draco is actually a character in, in um, Harry Potter, and he winds up in uh, uh, Slytherin, House of Slytherin. So yeah. Harry Potter has a sorting hat, um, mm. which decides yeah. whether you're going to go to, um, I forget, it's Huff and Puff, um, oh. Slytherin, or the one that Harry Potter goes to. Um, um, um. Uh, you know, Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, mm. Anyway, so so what what was the sorting hat that took the left mm. away mm. from caring about those things and made it into Draco, Draconian, yeah. uh, into Slytherin? So mm. I feel that this is a complicity, and it winds up not being left in the sense that you know we care about our you know poor people. It winds up being left as like how can we get. The, the bigger power. And I'm going to put one other tidbit into the question, which is, mm. there's a test for maturity. They give kids, a bunch of kids, they put in a room, they put marshmallows in front of them. And they say, if you eat a marshmallow, you can have the marshmallow. If you don't eat the marshmallow, you can have 20 marshmallows tomorrow. And, and, and the less mature ones eat the marshmallows. So, and mm. as they get, kids get older, they do this experiment of five, 10, 15, whatever. The 15 years, none of them eat the marshmallows. They understand the future. So is this part of the greater good that the greater goal is to kind of take over society from the left and we're going to do all this stuff now because we can accumulate, uh, agglomerate and, and congeal mm. power. So that, anyway, that, that's a yeah. lot. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think it is, what we witnessed was, uh, uh, so I think there were profit motives but there were also political uh, motives uh, maybe other centers of power had more political motives i mean uh i, I think there were uh, you know elements uh, in in western power that definitely were worried about uh worried they were losing control uh, i mean let's not forget that the 20 or you know, the late 2010s 
are the years of you know of the so you know the so-called uh, you know populist uh, it's a populist moment throughout the West. You've got Brexit, Trump. I mean, there was this kind of democratic uprising in a number of you know, anti-elite, anti-establishment uprising in a number of countries. Uh, so I think the elites were kind of freaking out. And Trump is obviously the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, is, is clearly um, at the center of all this. Um, so uh, I don't think it's completely unreasonable to think that the pandemic was also a way to put an end, you know, a way to put an end to all this. Uh, and it worked, in fact. You know, I mean, we've seen the, you know, um, the so-called populists, you know, e everywhere uh, have been, you know, largely wiped out by, by the pandemic. Uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, Trump. Uh, so, uh, so I think there's an argument to be made there. You know, that this, that maybe you know, Trump in particular, and more in general. The kind of you know the, the, this this democratic populist uprising that we saw in those years uh, was the was one of the targets of this measure um, as a way to you know roll back democracy and roll back um, any any challenge to the status quo. Uh, and I think um, uh, the uh, and, and I think the left, uh, the contemporary left, uh, it 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 shares this anti-democratic uh, project. Uh, I think that the contemporary left uh, has a deep distrust for the masses, for the people. Uh, there's, there's, there's a class element there, too. A lot of those on the mainstream left, especially in academia. So the ones that are kind of crafting the, uh, the, the left wing narrative. And of course, you know, there are a number of uh, I mean, I think it's always important to distinguish when we talk about the left. I mean, we're not. As, as you know, as the response to my article showed, a lot of ordinary people that you know identified as being on the left didn't necessarily share that worldview. We're talking about the kind of elite left that shapes what comes across as what the left thinks, and so the academic, you know, the left in academia, the left in uh, and the left in the media, especially. I mean, this is we're talking. Uh, you know, these are all members of the so-called you know laptop class. They're, they're they're people whose jobs aren't rooted in production anymore. They have no contact with that world anymore. They're not they have really no not that much of a contact with the actual working class anymore. In fact, they largely despise the working classes because their you know the working classes' values tend to be so different from theirs. You know, I mean, they the working classes they don't buy into woke progressivism. You know, and uh, and so any attachment uh, you know uh, that ordinary people have to traditions to uh, 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 you know social cohesion uh, and you know uh, the existence of borders and, and you know, the need for borders and so on is seen by those on the left as uh, you know proof of the intrinsic kind of you know reactionary nature and fascist nature of the masses and so there's a, there's a deep distrust and deep fear I would say of, of the masses which I just considered you know a to be, uh, you know, a bunch of, you know, racist, fascist, uh, ignorant, uh, you know, nuts. And, uh, and, and so there is this idea that, uh, and, and so the left has largely given up on democracy. They know that they can, they could, they could, they will never be able to achieve their vision of society by, you know, via democratic means because they're never doing, because that, that, you know, their worldview uh, is so unpopular. Uh, and so they, they've realized that they can actually, you know, uh, even though they represent a very small minority view in society, uh, by you know exercising control over the means of the production of knowledge and the production of information, they can actually you know impose their worldview on the rest of of, of society. You know, and we see that in a number of, of realms. And uh, and I think a lot of them did see the the pandemic, you know, uh, in this way. For them, it was so. A lot of them might have actually. I mean. 
you know, they're delusional, but they're not all, they don't all have, they're not, they're not all acting in bad faith. I think, you know, there's a good part of them that are, are I mean, they really did believe that finally now we're going to see, uh, you know, uh, the, the collective being prioritized rather than the, rather than the individual, which is what, you know, from their perspective, we've seen in the neoliberal era. Uh, finally, you know, the return of public health, the return of the state, uh, after years of uh, you know pro uh, pro market and, and you know pro free market narratives and and so on and so forth, so that's how they viewed this as as a way of they really saw this as you know a a, a you know a, I think there was it um, a Jane Jane Fonda I think in an interview she she described you know the pandemic as a gift. Uh, from God to the left, you know. I mean, that's how that's how they view. That's how a lot of them viewed this. You know, of, of finally, it's this is our chance. You know, to to implement all the things we believe in. You know, and uh, um, so, yeah. I'm going to stop you there for a second. I apologize, yeah. but we're, we're we're rounding towards the end of our hour together. Yeah. And I, I kind of, um, I, you know, the I think there's an expression. You know, the per, I think from the left, the the personal is political, um, and sometimes the other way around. The political becomes personal. I think that that was my own experience that, um, a lot, you know, I, I'm in a lot of different groups and one of them is sports club and, you know, play tennis and so forth. A lot of guys, uh, most of the guys and, you know, everyone, I, I'm kind of more on the right and they're almost every, you know, uniformly on the left. Um, everyone gets along, but COVID became a, a huge uh, kind of political schism and people wind up yelling at each other, mostly yelling at me, frankly, but um, <laughs> on a personal basis, you know, I, I want to tell our audience, I mean, you've, You've translated uh, George Soros, uh, Christopher mm -hmm. Hitchens, uh, Robert Reich. Um, I don't know if you dealt with them personally at all. Uh, I'm a no. huge admirer. Uh, I think I believe he's a socialist also, Christopher Hitchens, for his, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, huge, brilliant man. Uh, may he rest in peace and so forth. Um, did you uh, did you have personal encounters with them? And no. I'll just as, I'll leave this one little uh, thought bubble. Uh, on a in the libertarian world, uh, the, the author of Black Swan, um, uh, Nicholas Nassim Talib, I think it is, yeah. um, uh, he, he wound up, you know, putting triple, you know, at least double masks on his air, air lines. You know, he, and he, he, his, he, he's been so COVID, you know, paranoid. So he, he lost a little bit of his cachet amongst the libertarian world um, mm. for this kind of like anti-libertarian aspect. And, and people, I think, got kind of, you know, world around. I mean, our minds, you know, we're preoccupied with fear when we're, we're, you know, we're fearful of fear. And um, so, so the question is, um, was there any kind of reordering of your, um, say, pantheon of mm. heroes? How did they act? Uh, how do mm. they act? And did it change anything in your own personal life? Uh, you know, as a, uh, mm -hmm. a, a man, a family man, uh, mm. a man of community? Well, I mean, it's definitely, uh, you know, a, it's it was it's, it definitely was a final straw in my you know long you know progressive estrangement from the uh, from the left uh, for sure. I mean, I I I'd already grown quite estranged from the mainstream left uh, by by adopting, for example, a very kind of pro national sovereignty, uh, a very pro national sovereignty stance. Uh, I've always been very critical of the European Union uh, and the Euro, which I consider to be, you know, a, a, uh, uh, 
and, and a, a pro-corporate, uh, you know, anti-democratic project, which has nothing to do with the left. But most of the left is enamored with the European Union. And so that had, you know, that kind of had already put me at odds with the left for quite some time. And But of course, the pandemic kind of, uh, I think it really got freed me uh, once and for all from, uh, you know, any sentimental attachment to these labels. Uh, I think I've really broken free. I mean, like, I really, uh, you know, I used to worry about, you know, should I write for that paper? What are my left-wing friends going to think? Because that's papers considered right-wing, even though, you know, they're the only ones that won't censor me. And every left-wing paper I've proposed this article to won't, won't you know, won't, won't take it or whatever. You know, uh, I used to worry about this a lot. I mean, now I, I don't worry about it anymore. I mean, I realize that th those labels are, are completely meaningless. In fact, I think, you know, they they've become uh, a great instrument in the tool in, in the hands of the elites for control, for dividing and conquering uh, societies um, because, you know, people, they don't, you know, so, so long as people will, will view and analyze and understand reality, uh, not, uh, not on the basis of what, you know, certain policies or certain people actually stand for, but, you know, in, the way those policies, those people are described in the mainstream media and view those things or those people through uh, through these prisms, uh, I think, you know, it'll be very easy to keep controlling the population because all you have to do is say, oh, you know, lockdowns uh, are, are right wing because Trump is right wing and he's against lockdowns. So clearly lockdowns must be... Um, um, uh, uh, I think you mean left, uh, left wing. I mean, sorry, because clearly, you know, lockdowns must be left wing because Trump is right wing and he's against them. Right. And so I think, you know, and this is that is, is an oversimplification, but this is how a lot of people really kind of uh, approached the pandemic and understood the pandemic. Right. I think a lot of people on the left switched their minds off very early on uh, when they saw people like Trump and Bolsonaro and Johnson being the only ones that, you know, were mildly criticizing lockdowns, they instantly decided that, you know, if, if these very bad people are uh, criticizing uh, lockdowns, clearly lockdowns must be a good thing. And so, you know, people now define themselves in kind of oppositional terms. And I think this is very problematic. So, uh, you know, I think ideally, I think we should try to break out uh, from these labels. Um, I think they're not helpful at all. I mean, they don't even mean what they used to mean you know, even just, uh, even just 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, the contemporary left has nothing to do with the uh, kind of, you know, the, the historical left rooted in, you know, the kind of socialist and, uh, you know, communist tradition, uh, I mean, at least in my, in my perspective. But at least it's definitely not rooted in, you know, working class, the working class tradition anymore. But even the contemporary right, arguably, is not what, is not what it used to be. Uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> And so I think, you know, we, we really have to find, I think, a new way of understanding reality. And, uh, you know, a new we need a new political compass that goes beyond these terms, in my opinion. But uh, the pandemic has certainly helped me break free from these terms. And I still, you know, I still use them because, because we haven't invented new words for understanding the world. And so we keep returning, even in this conversation, how many times have the words left and right come up, you know, because so we still use those terms to understand reality because we haven't got anything better but I think we have to, uh, you know, ideally we need a new vocabulary to understand the world because these, these terms aren't very helpful anymore. So for me, it's been, um, you know, I've lost a lot of friends through the pandemic, most on, mostly on the left. But I found uh, a wonderful community of, uh, of new friends uh, from all walks of life, from all political, uh, ideological and cultural backgrounds. And, and it's been beautiful. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, what... 
what distinguishes us, uh, what, what unites us, is that um, you know we are we're we're actually you know we're actually judging these policies on the basis of uh, you know of, of how they made us feel almost on a spiritual level. You know, I think uh, uh, at some point you have to realize that. Uh, there's there's almost an anthropological distinction to be made here. I think uh, at some point, if you didn't, it wasn't just about. It's not all about a rational critique of lockdowns. Of course, there are not. You know, I've written a 500-page book. You know about why lockdowns were wrong. But I didn't. I don't think a lot of people need a 500-page book to realize why lockdowns are wrong. I think a lot of us just had an instinct, an instinctive reaction against lockdowns. You know, I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of uh, I found as fellow, you know, uh, comrades in this, you know, pandemic journey, a lot of, a lot of Christians, a lot of people that have a spiritual worldview. I think that's not a coincidence. Uh, uh, I think maybe they were more heightened to the fact that there was something deeply wrong, deeply inhuman, you know, about these, uh, about these policies. Uh, and so it's a, it's, it, you know, what we've seen is the emergence of a new, uh, a new community a political community, but it's also pre-political in the sense that, you know, uh, th th this has been, uh, you know, for a lot of us, a pre-political, a pre-ideological reaction, you know, I mean, it was just a kind of a gut a gut feeling reaction that just told us, no, you know, it's wrong to lock people inside their homes, to stop people from socializing, it's wrong to, you know, stop kids from socializing, it's wrong to want to, you know, <laughs> inject anything that breathes uh, with, you know, an experimental vaccine. Yeah, no. Absolutely. All along from early on, I, I, I was, you know, I'm into words. Uh, I, I do cryptic puzzles and whatnot. But, you know, the, the concept of socialism uh, and, and then being anti-social, anti yeah. you know, and we're going to have social distancing and so forth, which is an oxymoron in a sense, because there's nothing social about this. Uh, and it's anti-social to begin with. So I, I feel as if this is all anti-socialism. And I'm going to leave aside the, the, you know, the deep meanings of those words. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, you know, we are social beings and, and clearly the worst punishment you can have in prison, you know, you're in prison to begin with, it's horrible, you know, con yeah. concrete walls and metal toilets and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and, and no privacy. Um, and, and then the worst punishment you can have is, is solitary. And this is what we did to everybody. And, and, then, and then the residuum, uh, we, we've seen play out is, you know, lost years of education, um, mm -hmm. lost years of social ability, uh, get back to that word. Um, we, we've seen, you know, the, the, I, I think the QALY, the, you know, the, the quality adjusted life years mm. uh, from the, 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 the draconian uh, measures uh, far will exceed uh, that from uh, the virus itself. And I think there was ample evidence um, uh, from the Diamond Princess, at the very least in January 2020, that this was not all that. You know, whatever okay. it did or didn't come out from China, that, that was fine. But this, we had a massive experiment with 3,711 people on a boat that you, if you wanted to duplicate, would have cost you $100 billion or more to get people on. And yet it was done, and it was all early on. And, and, and you know, I'm a Sherlock Holmes fan from childhood, and there's a story of the dog that didn't bark in the night. And the mystery is solved because the dog knew mm. uh, the, 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 the perpetrator and didn't bark. And so the, the, for me, the dog didn't bark was everyone who didn't mention the Diamond Princess. And that's the dog that didn't bark. Why didn't you mention the Diamond Princess all along? This is an experiment. This should have been like, you know, the, the populace should have been assuaged. The, the essence of public health is, you know, pub, public is a political part and health. So for the you care, or you don't care. And so everybody, again, getting to Fauci bought versus Fauci bought, 
you know, some aspect where this became, uh, you know, experiment for an mRNA, you know, treatment modality, which I'm not against mRNA per se as a, as a treatment modality, but I think it should have come in like everything else, you know, gradually. And so to have this voiced upon the public was, was a, a huge abrogation. And, you know, uh, I think Anthony, uh, I forget his name, but Bridgen, uh, MP Bridgen in, in uh, UK yeah. is being lambasted for uh, having uh, made an equivalence between this and the Holocaust. And I, you know, I'm Jewish, my family uh, suffered uh, broadly and so forth. I understand what the Holocaust was, but, but this, you know, this didn't have, this is not the, that type of Holocaust, but it is certainly um, an ignorant um, application of, of, of horrible measures for, um, for materialist, uh, selfish purposes. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. we're going to be, uh, I'm going to let you have the last word. And while you do that, I'm going to put up uh, some of your work. So maybe you can just give uh, us some, some guiding well, thoughts. Yeah. Um, ooh, I, I, I don't know. Just like it, you want me to wrap up, basically? Well, yeah, give us your final thoughts. I'm going to show oh. while you're doing that. I'm just going to give you I completely agree with what you said. I mean, there's there's so much that points to the fact that this wasn't a... Because uh, I think that's the narrative that I think they're going to go for. They're going to admit that a lot of these policies, a lot of these measures had negative consequences because it's going to be impossible to... Uh, to hide the evidence, but they're going to say, yes, but we were acting, uh, you know, on a whim, we were, you know, going out on a limb, you know, we were just, we were improvising because, you know, we we're in the midst of this unprecedented uh, emergency. And so, you know, we were testing things out and yes, we'll admit that some of those things turned out to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think at some point they'll, you know, they'll, they will easily admit that lockdowns were a mistake, you know, but the point is they weren't a mistake. You know, I mean, this is, I think this is the fundamental point. Uh, you know, you mentioned Diamond Princess, and that points to the fact that uh, it's not, they weren't, they weren't overwhelmed by the panic. The panic was engineered, and it was engineered at the highest level. So, of course, some, uh, you know, mid-level politicians, mid-level bureaucrats, mid-level uh, public health officials, uh, without a doubt, were overwhelmed. But, the, but at the highest level, someone was engineering the panic. You know, this panic didn't just engineer itself. It was engineered and it was engineered in the form of, for example, uh, 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 exaggerating the dangerousness of COVID. And this was done at the highest level. As you, know, you mentioned very early on, very early on, we knew that the actual, uh, you know, even from the early data coming out, coming out from Wuhan, we knew that the uh, the overall infection fatality rate was likely to be very very low, uh, and that it, it, it and that COVID only represented a serious threat for elderly people and people with serious medical preconditions. Uh, the date you know the data coming out of Wuhan already showed us this. Um, very early on, we had a uh, in fact a study by John Ioannidis, one of the world's foremost scientists. You know who uh, he estimated uh, an infection fatality rate of I think you know less than zero. Uh, less than 0.1% uh, for the overwhelming majority of, of the population. And in fact, you know, these numbers have been confirmed by, a, you know, a recent study jump that Ioannidis did. Uh, and, you know, where he, he came to the conclusion that for anyone, you know, and this is in 2020, so pre-vaccines, COVID was re already had an infection fatality rate of about, uh, of, of about 0.1% for uh, uh, anyone uh, under 16. Yep. And, and of course, this was known. Instead, we saw it, we had the WHO go out there and say very early on, 
that the you know the mortality rate of COVID was uh, 3.4%, which is craziness. I'm going to have to stop you there because we're heading yeah. towards the hour. So uh, I want people to go out and buy your book. Uh, they yes. can follow you on, on uh, Twitter. Oops, this is the wrong one. I apologize. So here's your Twitter feed. Um, Battle yep. for Europe, which is uh, uh, an excellent point. And I, I recommend people follow you. You're, you're brilliant and comprehensive, as we've seen uh, from some of the things I showed. And I try to end with a, a little commercial for myself. So I apologize. Um, this is um, my book, Overturning Ziga, the Pandemic That Never Was. Um, here's the cover of the book. You can buy it on Amazon. It's coming out in Brazil very shortly. Uh, it's being published and I'm hoping it's getting an audience there. Uh, Zika, the pandemic that never was. Here's my uh, self-portrait, Mila Mooring. Um, and uh, uh, we're going to leave it there. So thank you so much, Thomas. Um, you're thank welcome you to stay on uh, briefly um, to chat with me, but everyone else, we're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <clears throat>